What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what's going on with old Glenn? Flies. Flies are going on with old Glenn. I have them all over my house again. It's wave after wave of them. I get a day or two of peace, then all of a sudden I get more flies again. So that's been frustrating. Uh, my podcast studio is overrun with flies. I have fly traps down there. I've got all sorts of stuff outside the house, inside the house. I think animals keep dying under my deck and then they just weasel their way into my house. I don't know what's going on. But that's a battle I'm losing. And that's probably the reason why I sound different right now. Because I'm not recording in the podcast studio. I'm recording in my tiny closet of a bedroom. Uh, you can probably hear the plane flying overhead right now. That's great. Another thing, I have old cats. And my old cats love to pee. One of them, I think, has a bladder infection. So she's been peeing under my bed in my bedroom and behind my couch and all sorts of places. So that's another half of the battle this week is cleaning cat pee and not being able to sleep in my own bed for days on end. Uh, here in the bedroom now recording, it smells like cat pee still. Little whiffs of it. So apparently I didn't get all of it. And then there's work. So that explains my week of why I haven't been making a podcast when I'm only two chapters away from being done altogether. So that's frustrating. But I'm back, trying to squeeze in a recording now, uh, before my girlfriend comes over. And then uh, I'm going to get together with Ben and uh, our mutual good friend, friend of the podcast, uh, Audra. So that's my week. And my weekend. Not a lot to talk about, except for the flies and the cat pee and the vet visits. And that's pretty much it. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat and with that enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen I am Glenn Nuzzles so where did we leave off in chapter 23, The People of the Abyss. Uh, Avis and Hartman get mobbed by angry comrades. 
Uh, Avis is saved by a guy named Garthwaite after Hartman dies. Uh, they get swept up in a mob and gunned down by mercenaries. Uh, the, the sound effect put a put uh, is something. She, uh, they get pulled from a mass of dead people, chat with the mercenaries a little bit before being steered with the group into Lake Michigan. And uh, then they escape again. And Garthwaite gets shot for trying to get food. So that's the end of that. Uh, now for chapter 24. Nightmare. I had not closed my eyes the night before the 20th century, and what of that end of my exhaustion, I slept soundly. When I first awoke, it was night. Garthwaite had not returned. I had lost my watch and had no idea of the time. As I lay with my eyes closed, I heard all the same dull sounds of distant explosions. Mm. The inferno was still raging. I crept through the store to the front. The reflection from the sky of vast configurations made the street almost as light as day. And one could have read the finest print with ease. From several blocks away came the crackle of small hand bombs and the churning of machine guns. And from a long way off came a long series of heavy explosions. I crept back to my horse blankets and slept again. When I next awoke, a sickly yellow light was filtering in on me. It was drawn of the second day. I crept to the front of the store. A smoke pall shot through with lurid gleams filled the sky. Down the opposite side of the street tottered a wretched slave. One hand he held tightly against his side, and behind him he left a bloody trail. His eyes roved everywhere, and they were filled with apprehension and dread. Once he looked straight across at me, and in his face was all the dumb pathos of the wounded and the hunted animal. He saw me, but there was no kinship between us, and with him at least no sympathy of understanding, for he cowered perceptively and dragged himself on. He could expect no aid in all God's world. He was a Helot. Let's find out what Helot means. Mm, a member of the class of serfs in ancient Sparta. Okay. And in the great hunt of Helots that the masters were making, all he could hope for, all he sought, was some hole to crawl away and hide like any animal. The sharp clang of a passing ambulance at the corner gave him a start. Ambulances were not for such as he. With a groan of pain, he threw himself into a doorway. A minute later, he was out again and desperately hobbling on. I went back to my horse blankets and waited for an hour for Garthwaite. My headache had not gone away. On the contrary, it was increasing. It was by an effort of will only that I was able to open my eyes and look at objects. And with the opening of my eyes and the looking came intolerable torment. Also, a great pulse was beating in my brain, weak and reeling. I went out through the broken window and down the street, seeking to escape, instinctively and gropingly, from the awful shambles. And thereafter, I lived nightmare. My memory of what happened in the succeeding hours is the memory one would have of nightmare. Just not a nightmare, just nightmare. And many events are focused sharply on my brain. 
but between these indelible pictures I retain are intervals of unconsciousness. What occurred in those intervals I know not and never shall know. Hmm. I remember stumbling at the corner over the legs of a man. It was the poor hunted wretch that had dragged himself past my hiding place. How distinctly do I remember his poor, pitiful, gnarled hands as he lay there on the pavement. Hands that were more hoof and claw than hands, all twisted and distorted by the toil of all his days, with on the palms a horny growth of callus, a half-inch thick. And as I picked myself up and started on, I looked into the face of the thing that I saw it still lived, for the eyes, dimly intelligent, were looking at me and seeing me. After that came a kindly blank. I knew nothing, saw nothing, merely tottered on in my quest for safety. My next nightmare vision was a quiet street of the dead. I came upon it abruptly, as a wanderer in the country would come upon a flowing stream. Only this stream I gazed upon did not flow. It was congealed in death, from pavement to pavement, and covering the sidewalks, it lay there, spread out quite evenly, with only here and there a lump or mound of bodies to break the surface. Poor, Driven people of the abyss, hunted helots, they lay there as the rabbits in California after a drive. All right, up the street and down I looked. There was no movement, no sound. The quiet buildings looked down upon the scene from their many windows, and once and once only I saw an arm that moved in the dead stream. I swear I saw it move with a strange writhing gesture of agony, and with it lifted a head, gory with nameless horror, that gibbered at me, and then lay down again, and moved no more. I remember another street, with quiet buildings on either side, and the panic that smote me into unconsciousness, as again I saw the people of the abyss, but this time in a stream that flowed and came on. And then I saw there was nothing to fear. The stream moved slowly, while from it arose groans and lamentations, cursings, babblings of senility, hysteria, and insanity. For those were the very young and the very old, the feeble and the sick, the helpless and the hopeless, all the wreckage of the ghetto. The burning of the great ghetto on the south side had driven them forth into the inferno of the street fighting, and whether they wended and whatever became of them, I did not know and never learned. I have faint memories of breaking a window and hiding in some shop to escape the street mob and was pursued by soldiers. Also, a bomb burst near me once in some still street where, look as I would, up and down, I would see no human being. That was a weird sentence. Also, comma, a bomb burst near me, comma, once, comma, in some street, comma, where, comma, look as I would, comma, up and down, comma, I would see no human being, period. But my next sharp recollection begins with the crack of a rifle and an abrupt becoming aware that I am being fired at by a soldier in an automobile. The shot missed, and the next moment I was screaming and motioning the signals. My memory of riding in the automobile is very hazy, though this ride in turn is broken by one vivid picture. The crack of the rifle of the soldier sitting beside me made me open my eyes, and I saw George Milford, 
whom I had known in the Pell Street days, sinking slowly down to the sidewalk. Even as he sank, the soldier fired again, and Milford doubled in, then flung his body out and fell sprawling. The soldier chuckled, and the automobile sped on. That seems like a pretty good spot to take a little break, and, uh, yeah, let's do that. And read about an exciting new book from Penguin Random House. This week's book, This Side of Night by J. Todd Scott. It's a hardcover. It's only 464 pages, people, and it comes out July 16th. Let's read about it. The vicious Mexican cartel war boils over into the Big Bend in the explosive new novel from the author of The Far and Empty and High White Sun. In the Mexican borderlands, a busload of student protesters is gunned down in broad daylight, a violent act blamed on the Namiso cartel. But its aging leader, Fox Uno, Fox One, sees the attack for what it is, another salvo in the long-running battle for control of the Namiso itself. Perhaps by a rival cartel, or maybe someone closer to home, dot, dot, dot. Across the Rio Grande, 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 Rio Grande, Sheriff Chris Cherry and his deputies, America Raysona, Reynosa, and Danny Ford find themselves caught in Fox Udo's escalating war with the recent discovery of five dead men at the river's edge. But when El Paso DEA agent Joe Garrison's own Namiso investigation leads him into the heart of the Big Bend, he's not ready to accept the cartel leader's retreat or defeat. Not only does he suspect a high-profile drug task force in a neighboring country is corrupt, he can't shake lingering doubts about the loyalty and motives of the young deputy. AIM Reynosa, A-M-E, and won't let Sheriff Cherry (laughs) ignore them either. You got, like, complicated names, and you got Sheriff Cherry. In this pitiless land, it's kill or be killed where everyone will make one final bloody stand to decide the fate of Namiso, the law in the Big Bend, and most of all, the future of America Raysona. Okay, let's read about the praise. Kirkus Reviews says the author exploits his decades of experience as a federal agent to create a powerful, realistic picture of crime along the southern border. Thriller fans will enjoy this absorbing and disturbing work. Publishers Weekly says... The stellar third volume in Scott's epic Texas border series after 2018's High White Sun, in parentheses, draws its inspiration from real-life tragedy. Scott, a veteran federal agent, writes with authority and gravitas about complex border issues. Fans of Don Winslow and Cormac McCarthy won't want to miss this one. Uh, the book list says Scott writes beautifully, dreaming up intriguing action scenes, which those who are focused on... Okay, well, we'll just move on. It's a, it's a book you should read, I guess. Back to the story. The next I knew, after that I was awakened out of my sound sleep by a man who walked up and down close beside me. His face was drawn and strained. The sweat rolled down his nose from his forehead. One hand was clutched tightly against his chest by the other hand, and blood dripped down upon the floor as he walked. He wore the uniform of the mercenaries. From without, as though thick walls, came the muffled roar of bursting bombs. 
I was in some building that was locked in combat with some other building. A surgeon came in to dress the wounded soldier, and I learned that it was two in the afternoon. My headache was no better, and the surgeon paused from his work long enough to give me a powerful drug that would depress the heart and bring relief. I slept again, and the next I knew I was on top of the building. The immediate fighting had ceased, and I was watching the balloon attack on the fortress. Someone had an arm around me, and I was leaning close against him. It came to me quite as a matter of course that this was Ernest, and I had found myself wondering how he had got this far, and eyebrows so badly singed. That's a weird little detail. It was by the merest chance that we had found each other in that terrible city. He had no idea that I had left New York, and coming through the room where I lay asleep, could not at first believe that it was I. Little more I saw of Chicago Commune. Wait. Little more I saw of the Chicago Commune. Okay. After watching the balloon attack, Ernest took me down to the heart of the building where I slept the afternoon out and the night. The third day we spent in the building. And on the fourth, Ernest having got permission and an automobile from the authorities, we left Chicago. My headache was gone, but body and soul, I was very tired. I lay back against Ernest in the automobile and, with apathetic eyes, watched the soldiers trying to get the machine out of the city. Fighting was still going on, but only in isolated localities. Here and there, whole districts were still in possession of the comrades, but such districts were surrounded and guarded by heavy bodies of troops. In a hundred segregated traps were the comrades thus held while the work of subjugating them went on. Subjugation meant death. For no quarter was given, and they fought heroically to the last man. Whenever we approached such localities, the guards turned us back and sent us around. Once, the only way past two strong positions of the comrades was through a burnt section that lay between. From either side, we could hear the rattle and the roar of war, while the automobile picked its way through the smoking ruins and tottering walls. Often, the streets were blocked by mountains of debris that compelled us to go around. We were in a labyrinth of ruin, and our progress was slow. The stockyards, ghetto, plant, and everything were smoldering ruins. Far off to the right, a wide smoke haze dimmed the sky. The town of Pullman, the soldier chauffeur told us, or what had been the town of Pullman, for it was utterly destroyed. He had been driven... He had driven the machine out there with dispatches on the afternoon of the third day. Some of the heaviest fighting had occurred there, he said, many of the streets being rendered impassable by the heaps of the dead. Swinging around the shattered walls of the building in Stockyards District, the automobile was stopped by a wave of dead. It was for all the world like a wave tossed up by the sea. It was patient to us with patent to us what had happened. As the mob charged past the corner, it had been swept at right angles and blank point range <laughs> by the machine guns drawn up on the cross street. But disaster had come to the soldiers. A chance bomb must have exploded among them, for the mob checked until its dead and dying formed the wave. Had white-capped and flung forward its foam of living, fighting slaves. Soldiers and slaves lay together, torn and mangled, around and over the wreckage of the automobiles and guns. Ernest sprang out, a familiar pair of shoulders and a 
cotton shirt and a familiar fringe of white hair had caught his eye. I did not watch him, and it was not until he was back inside me and we were speeding on that he said it was Bishop Morehouse. (gasps) Soon we were in the green country. I took the last glance back at the smoke-filled sky. Faint and far came the low thud of an explosion. Then I turned my face against Ernest's breast and wept softly, for the cause was lost. Ernest's arm about me was eloquent with love. For the first time, lost dear heart, he said, but not forever. We have learned, tomorrow the cause will rise again, strong with wisdom and discipline. The automobile drew up at a railroad station. Here we would catch a train to New York. As we waited on the platform, three trains thundered past, bound west to Chicago. They were crowded with the ragged, unskilled laborers, people of the abyss. Slave levies for the rebuilding of Chicago, Ernest said. You see, the Chicago slaves are all killed. And there you have it. Chapter 24 of The Iron Heel, Nightmare. And it was a nightmare. What did we learn? Avis is on the run for her life. Those horse blankets weren't really doing the job. Uh, but her man never came back. Garth Waite died. She couldn't keep waiting for him. Then there was the dis- uh, disabling sort of craziness, the in-and-out montage of her trying to scramble for her life to get to safety. And she uh, sees a lot of dead people. A lot and a lot of dead people. Piling up still rivers of dead people. Arms going up and then person just dying in the heap and mound of carcasses. It's kind of just sort of porn for this book, I guess. The idea of people dying is something that's uh, romanticized, the drama. So she deals with that a lot. She gets to a hospital, passes out again for the millionth time. They give her drugs, and then she wakes up on the roof of the hospital watching a balloon fight with Ernest. Sweet, sweet Ernest. And I love that he sees her by chance, and instead of sitting next to her concerned and hoping she's okay, he says, oh, hey, it's Avis, and picks her up, still passed out and unconscious, takes her to the roof, and they just watch the balloon fight um, until she wakes up. So that's a really weird thing to do. They get in a car, and there's another bomb. More people die. But Ernest sees something, leaps out of the car, and it turns out that it's uh, Bishop Morehouse's corpse. So that's a nice little turn of events. And it ends with a never-give-up speech by Ernest about how poorly things went. And then they get on a train for New York. So that was Chapter 24 of The Iron Heel. I hope you come back again for what should be the final chapter... And then on to a more uh, entertaining book. Thanks for listening.